David Gordon Hall. My old friend. I wonder how many people actually know what the G stands for. <laughs> Not very many. Because it was just David G. Hall for, I think, for a long I think time. He, but you, you used to use that on the radio, didn't you? For a while. I uh, never used the name Gordon. It's just all, it's been David G. Hall since I started working with you at KFBK in Sacramento in the 80s. Yeah. As a news director, I think the guy who hired you at that station, Norm Woodruff. He didn't hire uh, me. Oh, okay. He, did, he didn't want us there. Oh, uh, okay. No, well, I, liked, he was, I liked Norm and I got, we got along with him. I got along with him well, but he didn't, he did not want uh, Bob Nathan to be there. The kind of act that we did as opposed to the kind of radio station he thought we were supposed to be. Uh, but, okay. Well, that makes sense. But that was a long time ago. And yeah. I figured it out. I think between the two of us, even though you are, uh, you're a number of years younger than me, you, you and I together probably have almost a hundred years in the radio business. I bet we do. I have a uh, 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 forty-four years. I have, and I you? got fifty-fifty-three. Wow, <laughs> that's uh, great. Yeah, you're right. It's about a hundred years. Let's start there. The business is 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 changing, and I think it's going away. Although uh, the industry doesn't like to say that, they don't like to admit it, and they they you know say, "Oh, there's more people listening to radio now than ever before." And I go, "Don't give me that." I mean, I'm still getting my paychecks through the from the industry, and I appreciate it. And I've loved my career, and I've enjoyed, uh, you know, most of it. And uh, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, is the technology is mm-hmm. is expiring. It's going. It's making us. Um, and I like to say that we're going to be the 21st century lamplighters. You know, we just just not in in uh, crying need anymore. But what I'm interested in is how. I don't think podcasting is the final transition to you because podcasting by and large at this point is not live. And it's that live and local aspect of radio that was always its strength. Well, I think for people of our age with, you know, with all the years that we were just talking about, uh, I think live and local is, we understand that live and local is important. Yeah. I think people, my daughter's age, she's 21 senior university of California. I don't think live and local means that. I don't think it means anything to her. I I think it's just if she needs information. She because she doesn't have the experience of it. Because she doesn't have the experience of it. That's exactly right. And, you know, she grew up, uh, you know, my driving her to school and listening, certainly listening to the radio every morning on the way to school, which I know is a great memory for her. And I know she appreciates it. So she certainly knows all about radio and she yeah. understands radio um, basically paid for the house that she grew up in and is paying for the college that she is attending yeah. now. She understands it in that way, but I don't think like live and local, if I were to ask her how important that is, I don't think it would even register with her. Cause I think yeah. what's replacing live and local is on demand. It what's replacing live and local is I want something. So I just go find it. I search it or whatever. I go find it and I, consume it, view it, listen to it, read it, whatever. And then I'm done. And I go on to the next thing. That makes a lot of sense. It's not something I'd thought about, but that's what makes you a great programmer. I want to explain to people. Because I can see the death of the industry coming at us over the horizon. (laughs) In that case, I'd rather not be a great programmer. You're like a dentist. You're trying to to work yourself out of a career, um, out of a profession. Now, I, I, I want to explain for people who might be listening in or, or watching and, uh, uh, you know, maybe people who have heard your name and don't really and don't know the background that uh, you started in radio. What you how you were a teenager, right? I was 12. Well, I started at KROI in Sacramento as a call screener yeah. when I was 12 years old. 
what happened was I, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I used to listen to that same station on this little clock radio that right. I think it was a hand-me-down clock radio from my dad in uh, Sacramento, California. I used to listen to you on the radio, as a matter of fact. I listened to these people named like Wonder Rabbit and, right. you know, um, and I wanted to be on the radio. I was absolutely fascinated. And when I, when I was 12, I was in the seventh grade at Catholic school. And I thought, you know, if this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, what am I doing just sitting around doing nothing? And I'd never even seen a radio station. So I went down to that radio station where you worked and where I first heard you, KROY. Yeah. And I saw just for a tour, just to see what a radio station looked like. Because well, I had we, this are, big we were on the Arden Way at the time. No, it, was, it just moved to Old Sacramento. It was oh. 19, 1977 when it went. Oh, there. okay. So, um, so I went there and I saw that they were like, you know, high school and college kids interning there, like ROP or whatever that program is called. <laughs> and I, was like, I was in the seventh grade. So I was like, um, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm in high school. I might be in college. Uh, can, can, would you care? And in those days, you know, now with labor laws and, you know, HR and all that stuff, there's no way a kid could do that today. In those days, they didn't care. They just said, yeah, sure. You can be an intern. Somebody and they wants said, to yeah. do the gopher work for free. That's great. Exactly. So, and it was a great job. You know, I answered the request lines for the DJs. I would, this is an extremely obsolete term that really shows our age in this business, but I would pull the carts for the DJs where I'd pull all the songs that they're going to play in the next hour and yeah. all their commercials. Tape uh, cartridges, little yeah. cartridges with, with tape. It was on an endless loop and that would be the commercials or and eventually, the eventually it became the songs. And I guess it was when you started too, but uh, we were just actually playing records, not uh, not songs on tape. Anyway, yeah. So um, I would, you know, sometimes if the DJ had to go to the bathroom or something, you know, I would yeah, sit there and in the room and watch the controls, and that was a huge thing at at that age. But that's how I started. So I've been doing it ever watching, since. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that was that was how I started. I've been doing that ever since. And so from there. How did you want now? I'm going to make this progression rather quickly, but how did you, how did you move into, how, how did you wind up doing uh, news radio? Um, so, several years later, I was working at this little radio station in Monterey, Cannery Row in Monterey, yeah. which yeah. again was a fantastic experience because it was such a tiny little radio station. There were about three of us there. Uh, I had been a DJ. I was doing requests and dedications from seven to midnight as a DJ. And the general manager came to me, which is a five hour shift. General manager came to me and said, you know, I'm paying you to be full time. So I'm actually paying you for eight hours a day and you're doing five. <laughs> so I need you to do something else. Um, why don't you do news in the afternoon? And I didn't want to do news. I just wanted to be a DJ. Right. Yeah. So I started doing news in the afternoon. And then one day there was this huge blackout over the whole area, the whole region, because there's a big power plant in, on the central coast that went out, right? So we're all sitting there. We didn't have a generator or anything. We're all sitting there waiting for the lights to come back on so the radio station could go back on the air. And somebody goes, hey, aren't you the news guy? Like, sh shouldn't you be out there at the power plant <laughs> gathering this story or something? And I was like, well, I got nothing else to do. I might as well. <laughs> I got in a car and I went out to the power plant and talked my way through the gate and, you know, was there with the other reporters and I loved it. And really? from then I, I went back to that general manager and I said, I'll tell you what, instead of doing news and requests and dedications, I'll do the morning news. I will go cover news all day long and then I will do the afternoon news. So I wow. signed myself up for a, basically a 12 hour day and I loved every minute of it. And that's how I made the transition. I don't think, I don't think this is how people get into any business anymore. 
starting, no. <clears throat> you know, just kind of learning a little bit here and there and fumbling your way in and, you know, whoever's in charge going, yeah, okay, come on. Yeah. Just got, got I don't think that happens the same way anymore. So what, uh, what moved you into sat back to Sacramento? I got fired and oh, I, uh, I didn't, know. well, <laughs> I, I, I got, I had, I got fired because I was homesick and I used to call my mom all the time. I mean, I, I, this is like, I was 18 years old when all this was happening. So eight, yeah. I just graduated from high school, moved to Monterey. So I was 18 years old. And uh, so I used to call my mom all the time and I ran up the long distance bill. <laughs> I so I got fired. So I wrote to the stations in San Francisco, which I thought there's no way, you know, they're going to hire me out of Monterey, this yeah. tiny little, you know, station. Uh, and I wrote to the, the stations in Sacramento, KGNR, where you were working at the time, and KFBK, the big, you know, fifty thousand watt sleeping giant at that time. And the the same news director that we were talking about a minute ago, who didn't want to hire you and gave me the middle initial of G on the as my air name, he uh, he he said, "Look, I don't have anything. I don't have any opening at all. But if you want to send a tape," and I said, "I can have it there in three hours," and I drove it there, and he was impressed. And he put me through my paces. He made me write a newscast. He made me record that newscast in a production room that I had never been in before with a, with a control board that was longer than the bed that I was sleeping in. Yeah. He brought in all these people from the newsroom to stand behind me to make me nervous while I <laughs> recorded my newscast that he, I had just written at this board. So I went he through wanted, all of he, these things. He intentionally gave yeah, you- It was intentional. In the nervous aspect. Of, yeah, totally. Because like he wanted to see how air, I would be under would fire. Be, yeah. Huh? Yeah. But he wanted that, to see how I would be under fire. He would, he wanted me to see what I would do like in a breaking news situation where you're yeah. just doing the your thing and you're doing the format. And then all of a sudden there's an earthquake or a whatever. And you have to people switch standing up around and, watching and listening. We're talking about exactly. We're talking about a guy named Norm Woodruff. who had come yeah. to Sacramento from uh, what? KCBS in San Francisco. KCBS in San Francisco. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. So. Uh, after that, he, he asked me after all of this, and he, he sent me out to go cover a story. I mean, it was like a day long thing. He had all me, me doing all these things. And all the time I'm thinking he doesn't even have an opening. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, but you know, I got nothing to lose. Okay. So, um, end of the day, do the last thing that he has asked me to do. And he says, I have two questions for you. And I said, okay, first one, how many people in the United States Congress? And I thought, well, 553, of course, 453 in the house and hundred in the Senate, but yeah. That's such a simple question. If you're asking me, it must be a trick question. And so I started, you know, second guessing myself. Well, uh oh, does Puerto, Puerto Rico have senators that I, you know, didn't realize right. or, you know, whatever. And I answered and he said, okay. And the current governor of California, his name was George Duke Majin at the time, mm-hmm. current governor of California. What did he do before he was governor? And I said, well, attorney general, of course. But again, I'm thinking, why are you asking me these really <laughs> basic questions? And then he said, you are the first person I have asked those two questions to who actually got them right who's in the news business. Wow. I want to offer you a job. And the, by the time I walked out of there that same day, I had a job and that's how I got to Sacramento. I started story. as a reporter. And I mean, that's how when you know, the whole news talk aspect of my career really took off. Yeah. And that's about the time I met you about 1985 is when I met 85, you. March of 85, as I recall. Yeah. Right. And this was happening. I was there with him in October of 1984. I started, I think the same week Rush did, because that was where Rush did his local, you know, started doing right. his local show. Right. We were just a few days apart when we started. I ended up being the news anchor in his show, and he used to make fun of me mercilessly. That, of course. Kami, Kami, Pinko, news anchor, David G. <laughs> Hall now. 
<laughs> with misinformation. David, it's your turn. He's like, you know, that yeah. was, that's what my intro was in his show to do a newscast. That was the that was the lovable little fuzzball, Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> yeah. I, people don't understand. You know, people still ask me about him. You know, oh, you worked with him. How could you stand it? How could I stand it? He was he was a good friend. Really, we really got yeah. along very well. He was a he was he a did. wonderful guy. And most people say, well, I, you know, doesn't sound like a wonderful guy on the radio. And I go, well, you know what? Uh, I suppose it was an acquired taste, but uh, he developed at that radio station. He developed his shtick, his yep. personality, his, his character. And he was, he was, he was really who he was in real life. He was, he was ultra conservative guy, but he, and, and, and it's a key thing in radio. It's like you, you present yourself, but you do it bigger right mm-hmm. it's 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 projected mm-hmm. and that was rush so and the other thing about him was and i'm explaining now in case people watching go you know did you guys work with rush the, the thing about rush was in person you would never know that he had these strong and uh, sometimes offensive of opinions about things because he was a, basically a wallflower in mm-hmm. uh, in social settings, mm-hmm. I had him. Uh, I had him over to my house for uh, a couple of parties, and we used to go out once in a while. And he just he kept typically sat in a corner and was just quiet. There was somebody come over and talk to him, and he was very polite and gracious. I mean, the guy was from Missouri, mm-hmm. you know, and from a big big name upstanding family. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, he was. He, uh... He, he came to my wedding. I got married in 1986, and yeah. my wife ran a bunch of women's health clinics in Northern California. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is going to be really, right, <laughs> right. really. But, you know, I invited him, and he came. And we, he was happy. I think he was happy to get the invitation. I think he was honored or, you know, whatever, to get the invitation. Right. And, uh, and he came, and he ended up sitting at a table with all of these colleagues of my wife. And that was the table that was the life of the party at the reception. <laughs> the laughing and the, just the noise <laughs> coming from that table. Rush Limbaugh sitting there surrounded by, you know, probably eight women and nurse practitioners who worked in, uh, in women's health clinics at that time. And that was the time where, you know, now the National Organization for Women was a big thing and abortion was a big issue, you know, as it is still now, I guess. But uh, and these these health centers didn't necessarily do abortions, but they were certainly women's health centers. And Rush and, Limbaugh was on the radio calling them feminazis. Exactly. And so here <laughs> he was sitting at a table with them for two hours. <laughs> my, and I kind of expected him to, you know, very politely come in and, you know, maybe give us a gift and, you know, yeah. hug my wife and shake my hand and congratulate yeah. us and then find his way out the door quietly when yeah. no one was looking. And he was there the entire time. He loved right. it. Yeah. He came to our wedding too, 1988. As a matter of fact, and it was an outdoor wedding up in uh, Nevada City, California, up in the foothills, the, the gold country outside of Sacramento. And we had we had horses and stuff. My wife came in on a beautiful uh, uh, a wagon pulled by horses. And, and, and uh, <clears throat> I came in on a white horse and my groomsmen were all riding horses and so forth. And we had put in the invitation that we were recommending uh, Western attire. Uh, well, Rush, you know, Rush, he was, you know, always wearing a suit and tie. <clears throat> yeah. And that's how he showed up. But he did. Sands come. about pants. Yeah. Right. And uh, uh, somebody found a hat, cowboy hat for him to wear. And uh, he had a great time, you know, and it was like it was it was no easy task getting there. It was a long drive. So uh, we were 
we were honored by his presence, and so were a lot of other people. Yeah. So that's kind of the background where you and I, uh, where you and I, got to know each other a little bit. I was impressed by you because of your your uh, natural gift for telling stories on the radio and in such a way as it was clear you were concise, uh, to the point, uh, and and you were well spoken, very articulate. You didn't uh, fumble around. You didn't have to write a script. And uh, you really loved what you were doing, so uh, that was very cool. And so the- you were you were a great inspiration for that because that's exactly how you are. Of course, you're describing yourself, and you know I've seen you over the years tell and heard you tell so many stories on the radio, and they're never scripted. If they were scripted, I think it would make it worse for you. They're never yeah. scripted. They're always off the top of your head. You know, uh, you were you were actually very inspiring to me. And there's there's a moment that we had together that I'm sure you don't remember, but I certainly do. I was reporting live in your morning show one morning. It was the arrival of the Sacramento Kings. They had moved from Kansas oh, City, wherever they came from. So I remember that. Sac- time yeah. Before. So it's like this is the day, the actual day where the team came to town. The the yeah. arena had been built and all this, and they came to town. I'm doing a a live report, a live shot in your show as their buses are approaching the the new arena. And I had this brain freeze. So I'm like in the middle of talking and I just totally lost my train of thought and couldn't grab it. And so rather than umming and aahing, I just froze. So on the radio, you hear me talking, then you hear and I and I'm silent. I'm mute, right? So you say, oh, obviously, you know, technical difficulty. We'll get back to David in a second. You go on to the other, whatever's next. And then you called me and you said, you okay? And I said, I'm so sorry. I just, I just had a brain freeze. And you said, you know, the thing to do when that happens is just change the subject and start talking about something else. So just talk about the weather. And the second you start talking about the weather, you'll remember where you were and just work your way back. It was great advice during like about 10 seconds during a commercial and then we went right back on went right back to my report and that was the cool thing about you is that i don't think i've worked with in my whole career anyone else that would have handled that the way that you handled that and of course at the time i was like you know mortified that i froze up during the morning show and your show and you know and that was that was an amazing moment i don't remember that the story that i like to tell from uh, being on the air and working with pup reporters, I call anybody who was young, you know, just starting out. <laughs> you were my pup reporter. Uh, was uh, was Brett Burkhart? Brett mm-hmm. Burkhart. I know a lot of people who, uh, a lot of radio people will watch and listen to this conversation with you, uh, so they know who Brett Burkhart is. He went on to uh, from Sac- from Sacramento. He went on to KGO and uh, won so many awards for reporting that uh, we always kidded him about having. Uh, an Edward R. Murrow wing onto his house in the Bay Area. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he just he just won every award that came down. I mean, he was he's a great reporter, and now he's at KCBS. But uh, he, we were doing a, a a live report with Brett one morning when he was very young and starting out, and he, it, it was at uh, is one of the one of the annual floods that we had in Northern California. You know, mm-hmm. it was every year. You know that. You know. And uh, he was out in Yolo County. I want to say up around Cash Creek, Woodland area, maybe a little bit farther north. I don't remember the exact location, of course, but he he was ready for the introduction. And I introduced him. I said, and and now we're going to go out to uh, you know Cash Creek and uh, KFBK's Brett Burkhart has a live report. And there was dead silence for about four seconds. And then Brett says very dramatically, 
That's the sound of a log floating by. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I interrupt. I said, excuse me, Brett. Can, can we hear that again, please? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever heard a sound of a log on the radio. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, as I remember, he, uh, he just went ahead and did what I asked. He put the microphone down by the log again. But, uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time. And we all learned so much. Yeah. We learned from each other, you know. And I, I just, uh, uh, I wonder, well, I can tell you for, from my own experience, and you've had much more experience than I have at, uh, at radio stations as you went on to Los Angeles, that uh, people, people don't work that way anymore in this country, I think. At least you tell me. There was that time when we used to all talk about radio all, all the time to each other. We talked about talked about news, or if we were disc jockeys, we talked about music, and we talked about the craft of radio, mm-hmm. how to do this, what's the best way to do that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know all that. And it was really exciting, and it was a learning experience. And I, but I, I got to Dallas eleven years ago. Wow, it's been eleven years already. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was none of that. None of that going on in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And, or among, and people just kind of come in and do their jobs. Everybody's polite. Everybody likes each other. Everybody gets mm-hmm. along just fine. But there's no conversation about the business. There's no passion, apparently, about yeah. the business. There's and I definitely don't know, less passion. Pardon me? There is definitely less passion now. Why about do you think the business that is? There were. Uh, I think it's because of the way the business has been managed over the last 20 years. Um, you know, since radio companies, yeah, since, since radio started consolidating, it's not mom and pop anymore. It's big corporations. All those big corporations of course have a ton of debt, which they accrued acquiring all of these radio stations. Uh, and so, you know, I think they're managed very differently than they were when we were at KFBK or, you know, earlier in our careers now. Um, But I will tell you this, maybe this will give you a glimmer of hope. First of all, my job uh, is to do exactly what you just described. So I go around radio stations in the United States and actually now all over the world and help people, coach people and help them be better. So, which is three things. It's finding their strengths and helping them just kind of stay in what they're best at, stay in their wheelhouses, you know, the the cliche would go. Um, trying to manage their weaknesses. So the things that they're terrible at, I try to get them to not do those things as much. And then I share a lot of best practices where I say, you know, hey, I heard this thing on NPR or I heard this thing on this station or in France, they're, you know, they're doing this thing that you might want to try. It seems like it'd be suited to you. So I, so that my job is doing just what you described and, uh, and it's gone and it's gone well. And it's, and I find people to be extremely receptive, probably for the very thing that you were just talking about, because they probably don't get a lot of good advice and they don't get that learning experience and they don't get the, that discussion, that passionate discussion that yeah. we used to have anywhere else in their building. And then I come along and, you know, and I, and it works very well. And I think they really, they really soak it up. They don't just um, look at you like some kind of nut. Oh, they yeah. always do it first. Oh, Jesus Christ. Another consultant, please. Oh. Yeah. You know, and then then we start talking, and then they go, "Oh, this is actually pretty helpful." <laughs> like they're <Yeah>. surprised. 
Um, and then it, you know, and then I, you know, I've had some really good, strong uh, relationships, you know, forged with these people that I've worked with over the years. And I've helped a lot of people, um, become very successful and, you know, so it's, so it all works out in the yeah. end, but it always starts with, oh, Jesus Christ, not another consultant. Do you find the, that that's, do you, I'm sorry, do you find that, uh, you get better reception from, uh, people who are working in other countries than, than here in the U S no, it's the same everywhere. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same everywhere. It's part of it is, um, you know, Oh, not another consultant. I'm going to come in with a list of things or I'm cookie cutter. So this is what I did 25 years ago at KFI in Los Angeles. So this is what I need you to do today, which I don't, you know, I, I don't work that way, but so they, they expect that in other countries, what I come up against is that's all very interesting, but you don't understand it's different here. It, right. This is not the United States. It's different here, you know? Yeah. And so I, that's something I always have to overcome. But what I was going to tell you is that, that I hopefully will give you a little bit of hope in my travels and in the United States, in my travels, going to stations, mostly big, but I have a couple of smaller ones too. I do find people at those stations that are passionate and that work like we used to work. There's a guy, the news director at WIBC in Indianapolis. His name is Chris Davis. Um, he was in Mississippi, tiny little town in Mississippi, and they hired him at the station in Indy, which was an MS station at the time. He's the news director, but he loves reporting, and he's a pretty good anchor. So he is the fill-in anchor for everybody, the morning guy, the afternoon guy, the late night guy, whatever. Sure. And then when he has free time, he just goes out and covers stories. So he's the news director. And then if something's going on and he doesn't have someone to send, he just goes out in the car and does it himself. And he works incredibly long days and he's very passionate about what he does and he loves what he does. And he's always looking for feedback. And and he's one of several people that I see and work with in this country where I go, okay, there are still people who are passionate and, you know, and the, the, the term eight hour workday does not apply to them or they do not apply that to themselves is really the way to say it. Um, and it, which is pretty cool. And it gives me hope seeing people like that. I, I would guess you may not know the answer to this, but I, I would guess that, uh, that's because like attracts like, and that's the kind of person you are and your, uh, you know, your, your passion is, is contagious. The things that you have to share are, are, uh, uh they're thought provoking, and you make people think about their own relationship to what you're talking about. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to talk to you, and and get that. Uh, man, how much longer am I going to be here? Feeling, because, you know, you really listen, and and you do have a lot to say. And when you don't know the answer to something, you say that. Yeah, and it's it's very refreshing. Yeah. So, uh, you. Uh, you went on to be a real big deal. You went down to Los Angeles, KFI. Was that your, that was your first programming job, wasn't it? My first programming job. Yeah. I was 22 when I That's left KFPK incredible. as news director and went down there as news director and then became right. program. Maybe I was 23 when I became program director. Yeah. But yeah, that was my first, my first programming job. <laughs> kind of a crazy place to have a first programming job. Well, and not only that, but you, and I guess, um, uh, George Oliva was the program director who took you down there, mm -hmm. right? From mm -hmm. Sacramento. George had been with us in Sacramento. I was supposed to go, but I couldn't get out of my contract. And uh, I guess a number of people left California, uh, KFBK to go down to KFI with George and you. Uh, I used to yeah, say I think there were five of us all together. I was going to say, they once. Kind of pretty much backed up the bus and, 
yeah. emptied the radio station. But um, you, you guys, I don't know how much was you and how much was George. I guess George wasn't there all that long, was he? No, he was there, I think, a year before I yeah, took over for yeah. him. So he hired so, me to be news director, and then a year later, he left, and I became program director. And KFI became like the most successful news talk station in the country, uh, you know, in a business sense, almost overnight. And you did some uh, really, really innovative things. And I believe they are still, how long ago was that? That was 1980. 1991, I started as okay. program director. Yeah. Yeah. Or 1990, I guess, I started as program director. Okay, so we're talking. That's a long time ago. It was 30 years, 32 30 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. And I think they're still using your ter- your phrase, right? More stimulating, more stimulating talk, talk radio. radio. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and some started, of the same people that I hired are still there. Like Bill Handel does the morning show. Yeah. Uh, does a great morning show. Um, John he's still Ken. there. John and Ken who do the afternoon show. Those guys are still there. Which is Where'd you find cool. these people? Um, Bill Handel uh, was already there doing a legal show on the weekend, Handel on the Law. Right, right, Listen right, to him right. do the show. It's a great and show. He would, and he would tell people, uh, look, I'm not supposed to give you this advice, uh, right. but here you go anyway. You know, he would say <laughs> right. things like that. He was very irreverent. And I love that. And I, you know, we had, uh, we had a morning show that was not working very well. And, you know, and you will know in, in those days, in the 80s and 90s, and you and Bob kind of had a version of this, but most morning shows on news talk stations were either just a solid news block, as we would call it, where it's just like an ongoing newscast for three hours. Right. Or it would be a couple guys like you and Bob, you know, mixing entertainment and news and some personality and then doing news and, you know, in that. And that's, that's what KFI was up against at the time. And I wanted to do something completely different. So I had this guy on the weekend uh, who's doing this legal show and very irreverent and a bigger than life personality. And I thought, you know, I got nothing, I got nothing to lose. What if I go with this guy in the morning and have him just do a talk show, which, excuse me, to that point, I don't think had really been done much in talk radio to just do a talk show in the morning. morning, Yeah. So I put him on and yeah, yeah, and he's still there 30, 32 years later. So that's, so that's how that happened. And he's great, man. He has such a great personality and he was, he was absolutely great to work with and to develop that show in the first, you know, first few years, first few years when we really got it going and when he really came to success. You hired a bunch of other people. I'm going to not be able to remember all the names, but uh, they were really um, new age kind of uh, talk radio people. They they weren't, you know, in that day, the standard process was to talk about uh, politics, kind of down the middle. You yeah. know, they would people would lean one way or the other, but it wasn't wasn't the outrageous kind of uh, um, rants and stuff that you hear these days. But you hired some people that uh, that had a lot to say, and I'm thinking like I'm thinking of uh, oh, man. There's a guy. He's Phil Hendry, maybe. Well, I was going to ask you about Phil Hendry separately, but uh, oh, doggone it! I'm going to I'm embarrassing because he's going to be watching this. He's a he's a Facebook <laughs> friend, and a, a, we are a mutual admiration society. Joe Crummy. Oh, okay, yeah, he was <laughs> okay. great. I love yeah. Joe Crummy. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and you had a what, mother love. Yeah, he, George. George hired mother love. Okay, actually, yeah. So it, the the lineup that I inherited from George was uh, was pretty creative. Mother love, a guy named Christopher Bartlett, an Australian guy, 
Uh, Joe was part of that. Uh, Tom Likas was part of that. He was doing oh, the sure, afternoon show. Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and within a couple of years, when I got hired, general manager said to me, because, you know, I'm like 22 years old, my first gig, first programming thing. General manager says, look, and we were like a one share of, I mean, we were like at the bottom of the ratings, right? Against mm -hmm. KNX, which is one of the biggest news, all news stations in the country and KBC, which was the original talk station and right. number one in the market and the top billing radio station in America. So we were like in the bottom of a canyon and mm -hmm. those were the, you know, the walls of the canyon, those two stations. So we had no audience. And uh, general manager said, look, I'm going to take a big chance hiring you to do this because you have no experience, et cetera. We feel like we have a good lineup and things have been, you know, set in motion. And so you just need to maintain it. Don't make any changes. And within two years, I think the, the whole lineup had changed. And it, and it wasn't like I just went through and clean house and got rid of them all. They all left for various reasons. Mother Love left for to do a TV show and Christopher Bartlett left. I don't remember why. And, you know, uh, and so, you know, there were a couple of people where I ended up having to make a change and replace them. But for the most part, they just kind of went their own ways. And I was forced with replacing him. So we had this part of the lineup before I started was a psychologist or a psych show, a woman named uh, Dr. Barbara DeAngelis. Uh -huh. And um, she, we had a contract negotiation and it didn't go very well and I needed to replace her. And I had this other person who had been working part-time named Dr. Laura Schlesinger. And I thought, yeah. well, I got, I got Dr. Laura in my back pocket. And frankly, I think she might fit what we're trying to do here a little better and fit the format a little better of, you know, being more outspoken and being more mm -hmm. opinionated because she certainly is opinionated. She's not and still so, in the air, is she? She's on Sirius XM now. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't know that. Yep. And then, as I said before, I had a morning show that was kind of falling apart. And so I went and got Bill Handel and, you know. Um, so, yeah, within a couple of years, the lineup ended up, ended up being pretty different. And it's mostly the lineup that's still there today with just a, a few changes. The... Uh the thought about Dr. Laura was always, and I've heard that a lot of people said this, and I have no idea, so I'll just ask you. Was she really a doctor of any sort? Of physiology. Physiology. Yeah. So not psychology or psychiatry yeah. or any of that stuff? No. Okay. So it's like Dr. Jill Biden, the doctor of education. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay. So tell me about Phil Hendry. Phil Hendry is a very well-known name, the most unique uh, radio talent I have ever heard, <clears throat> never met him, always wanted to go watch him perform. Didn't he's he amazing do, to watch. Didn't he do live audiences? Yeah, he he's yeah, uh, he's done a, f a couple or a few over the years. E yeah. Explain, explain it, his act, what he okay. did and, right. and how he, how you came on to him. Well, he, I don't mean how I, you came on to him. I mean, how you, how you found <laughs> I said, him. Hey, funny. big boy. So, uh, <laughs> So um, he was working part-time at KFI when I took over, uh, well, right before I took over as program director, when George Oliver was still there. And he was doing a very um, straight talk show, topic, politics, opinion, uh, calls, uh, you know, beating up calls, whatever. And um, George, actually, so right before I started, George fired him. And he went to uh, first, I think he sat on the beach, probably literally for a minute. And then he had found himself at this little radio station in Ventura. And he started doing the same, you know, kind of angry, not necessarily conservative, but very opinionated talk show. And he got no phone calls. And then one day, I don't know how many months into this he was, and he was getting pretty tired of the fact that nobody would, would call him. So one day he decides to be the phone call. 
So he called and was on the phone. And so he was himself, he was the host, and then he was a, a caller. And then he decided to have a guest. And his first guest he was, was just, to, I think, just to clarify, he was talking to himself. That's as right. Two separate people. Right. He was the host of the show talking to a caller who was also him. And that's he, right. He never, I mean, maybe in the beginning, you can help me with this. When he was on the air on KFI doing that later, he never, he never met, made any secret of that. People, no. people, people didn't believe when he said, you know, I guess he, I don't remember exactly how it was, but he never made any secret of the fact that he was doing these characters on the, on the phone. Uh, but people believed them. People just yeah. bought he, into he them. He made anyway. them very believable. Yeah. He didn't script or does, he still does it, I guess, to this day. He doesn't script any of it. It's all off the top of his head. So he's like two and sometimes three people at the same time. You yeah. know? So, so now sometimes he's the host. Hey, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks yeah. for listening. Here's the phone number, blah, blah, blah. And then he's the guest and he has a totally different voice and he has, a, he has like a cast of characters of regular right. guests that he has on. And then sometimes he's also the caller. So he'll be the host trying to, you know, be the moderator. And then he's the increasingly crazy guest. And then he's right. the caller who was just incensed at the craziness that the guest is saying. <laughs> right. And he, he's all three. And so and he, he, he got so good at it. He could interrupt himself. Right. And, and, and the pacing was perfect. That's right. He, and he, he would, never he lost his train of voices. thought. And, yeah. He would mix three voices into one little tightly piece, tight piece of, uh, of dialogue. Yeah. A very fast dialogue. Yeah. yeah. And he does, he does, he does interrupt himself that I think that's the trick that makes it kind of work and feel so real is the way that he interrupts himself. Cause you could swear he's talking over himself, but of course, right. literally, you know, he can't, he isn't, he, he can't be. So that's, so then he started doing these voices and he got, he started developing his characters um he we hired him the same company that owned kfi we hired him to do the afternoon show in miami and then sold that radio station and i asked that when the station be sold that he be held back within the company to come work with me at kfi which i didn't think they were going to do because when a radio station especially a talk radio station is sold the value of the station is right. the comes from the personalities you can't yeah. you can't not have the afternoon number one personality and hold the price of the radio station but they did that and luckily for me and they held him back and he moved back to la and came back to kfi and did the show in the evening for me for a few years and then became syndicated by uh, premier radio and then when i left kfi i actually went to premier and at the same time that they syndicated him and continued to work with him there it's a small business, isn't it, in that respect? Yes, I mean, it is. You, you and I met in 1985, and uh, for a brief time there, I was your boss. And then <laughs> yeah. so 20 years later, you were my boss in Los Angeles. Yeah. First at, it is know, funny how that works. KNX, Somebody, so. when I first started, you know, when I was like 12, 13, whatever, at that at KROI, that first radio station, somebody said, man, be nice to everybody because you never know when somebody's going to be. And they were telling me at the time. We're going to be working for you someday, and so yeah. that's why we we treat you with respect because we know we're going to be working for you someday, and it does work that way. It does work that way. Um, for people who don't don't understand the uh, the per, the uh, the perspective of of your career, and I don't remember. You'll have to remind me uh, how you got into consulting because at one time in Los Angeles after KFI, you were working 
uh, at KNX, KFWB, where I was working. And mm-hmm. then you went over to KABC for a while. And now, now you are a, cons- as you said, a consultant, but it's more than a programming consultant. You are widely considered to be the, the biggest uh, programming brain in the world. And I know I've heard that I've heard the term uh, genius a lot about you going back many years. And I'm sure you probably would disavow that, but I would. <laughs> uh, the fact of the fact of the matter is uh, you've had an extremely successful career programming radio stations all over the world. Where are these, where are these countries that you're working with now? Well, right now I'm working in um, Spain, France, Portugal, Greece, and then Peru, Colombia, Mexico, and then in the United States. But I've worked in New Zealand, I've worked in Poland, I've worked in the UK, I've worked in different countries. How do you work in these different countries without knowing the language? How do you even listen to the radio station? (laughs) It's a really good question, especially since, well, I work with a lot of morning shows on music stations. So thank God those segments are two and a half minutes long and they're easier to, (laughs) you know, to consume than a whole three hour talk show. But um, I, uh, I speak Spanish, so uh, that helps me in Spain and Mexico and you know Latin America. Um, it a- helps me get by in Portuguese, so I can listen to Portuguese, and sometimes I have to listen to something a couple of times to get it. But I can, I can get it, and you know, with Portuguese, somebody helps me translate in French. Somebody definitely helps me translate in Greek because I know about two words in Greek. Mm. Um, and that's, so that's how I get by. So, so for example, um, this week I'm going to be listening to a show from Greece and I have a translator. And so we listen together and she tells me what they're saying. And she's great because she doesn't just, she's not like a human Google translate where she just tells me the words. She'll tell me the meaning. She'll say like, he's being sarcastic here because he's saying this, but he really Uh means this. And that's the kind of nuance I need. My consulting started in uh, the early 90s, when I was at KFI, and I was still a pretty new program director at KFI, um, the company that I was working for, Cox Broadcasting, became an investor in the first commercial radio in Poland after communism. So radio in Poland was all state radio during communism, of course, yeah. and just like it is now in, in Russia. And when um, communism ended in Poland, they auctioned off radio licenses, you know, so just like in the United States, they could become commercial and, and businesses run them instead of the state. So they asked, they, some, they decided they wanted this radio station. They wanted to put on a spoken word radio station in Poland right after communism. And they wanted it to somehow sound like KFI. And so they came to get me. So it was within the company. So it was certainly with the permission of my company. I started consulting and we launched this, um, all you know news and opinion radio station right after communism which by the way is still there and number one to this day in poland yeah but it was it was an amazing adventure because right after communism um you would you know people the people working there were still very much the way they had been during communism sure like um you know mr hall that's I mean, we understand that we would love to be able to like express an opinion about the government, but you have to understand when you do that, that's when you disappear and your kids disappear and, you know. Yeah. Well, besides that, how do you even, how do you teach somebody to have an opinion? Yeah, exactly. If they never, never. So that's, that's what my role was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I have to tell you, this is a great story. I have to tell you, I was, and to this day, it's one of the coolest things I've done in my whole career. I was so proud of those guys because the very first meeting we had 
was exactly what you just said. It was my thinking, oh my God, how am I going to get these guys to actually find an opinion to express? Because yeah. they had come from a society where even if you have an opinion, you bury it. So you don't even show it on your face, right? I would imagine that you would become ashamed of having a political yeah, thought. You know? Exactly. So that's where we started. Just two years later, I'm still working with them. The station is now you know, we have like a full lineup. We're on our way. We're going, we're zooming up in the ratings. We're doing very well. The second president to Poland, the first guy was Lech Wałęsa, the solidarity yeah. guy. The guy yeah. who replaced him, Szewczynewski was his name, was running for re-election. And this was the first time since communism that there had been a second free election or, or a re-election of a president. Because I think Lech Wałęsa was just there for one term. So this guy's running for re-election. He's He's saying some stupid things in the press because he doesn't know what he's doing and politics is brand new there and campaigning right. is brand new and there aren't handlers, you know, helping his every word. So he says some stupid things in the press and he freaks out a little bit. And so he pulls way back from the press. So there's a there's this period of time where he's running for campaigning, basically running for reelection and silent in the media because he's too afraid to say anything. So the story in the country becomes uh, this your our president is hiding from us because he's not saying anything publicly, right? So the radio station, and this was not my idea, this was their idea, the same people who said, well, Mr. Hall, if we give an yeah. opinion, they will kill us. Two years later, they, they rented this great big flatbed truck. They put this concert, you know, size, sound system, huge speakers on the back of the truck, big banner with the radio station logo, of course parked it right underneath his office. I think he was like in a third floor office. So they parked it right on the street. Speakers aimed up at his office. They blasted the radio station at the building in his office. And they went on the radio and said, okay, so he's been hiding for you from you, but we found him and we can guarantee you that he <laughs> can hear you now. So anything you want to tell him, to do. <laughs> any, anything you want him to hear, please call us right now and we guarantee he is listening to you right now. That's fantastic. And, and, and people did. And they weren't, they, they, they weren't mean. They weren't, uh, you know, they were very courteous. They're like, oh, Mr. President, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they would say whatever their things were. And then the front page of the newspaper the next day in the national paper in Poland, like the whole front, you know, the top of the fold was this picture of our truck with our banner, the window. And he's looking down through the window, holding a telephone, like he's telling somebody, get these guys the hell out of here, you know, whatever. But that was the picture in the paper the next day. So I'm very, very proud of how far those guys came. And that, that was my very first experience consulting, and I've been doing it ever since. For people like your daughter who don't know what Live and Local is all about, that is the perfect example of Live and Local, the power of radio, the excitement, yep. how, how uh, you know, how what, whatever is happening on the radio takes fire. The entire community stops whatever they're doing to listen and get involved in it. Yeah. And that's the thing that's, that's the thing that's uh, becoming, uh, becoming history in the business. And I guess there's no way to change that. And I don't think that there's anything uh, that can be done in the way of podcasting before we move into that though. Are you aware what you just, uh, the story you just told from Poland, mm -hmm. uh, free Poland, are you aware of the movement that's going on now in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, with we're recording this we're talking about this on uh, november 3rd 2022 right now and i had a recent conversation on klif with my 
partner, Amy Shadrop, with a, an author, an American author who wrote a book called Does Putin Have to Die? And the second part of the title was How, How Russia Becomes a Democracy After Losing the War to Ukraine. Wow. And it, it was written that this, this author was, a, was writing, he wrote it with uh, a former member of the Russian Duma. Mm-hmm. His name is Ilya Panamerov. Mm-hmm. And Ilya Panamerov is a true Russian patriot, but he was exiled. He was forced to flee Russia after he was the only member of the parliament in 2014 to vote against the annexation of Crimea. He's totally anti-Putin. Putin and his uh, and his people forced him into fleeing, and he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of others that did too. So um, <clears throat> I'm only mentioning this because this is going to become a big thing, and I don't know why it isn't yet, but tomorrow these exiled Russian uh, members of parliament are meeting in uh, Warsaw, and they're mm-hmm. holding they're holding what amounts to the constitutional convention of night of 1787 in Philadelphia. Wow. They're putting together the framework for uh, uh, what they call a parallel parliament. They're, they're going to sit down and write a brand new constitution for a free and democratic Russia for whenever Putin is killed or, or he's, you know, run out of the Kremlin and uh, they're going to be ready to move in and, and put this together. And the really ingenious part about it, this is why I'm so excited about it. Probably should have to edit it by the time I finish talking with you, but because it has nothing to do with anything else. But um, the genius part about it is that what they're going to say in this constitution is first, we're going to put together a temporary government, federal government for Russia. And there is a set amount of time these people, the president or whatever they're going to call him, and, and the other members of the, the delegation will have a set period of time, probably two years, in which to finish framing the Constitution, setting up free elections, and really, truly free elections. And then at the end of their two-year period, they're out. And they can never, ever go back into politics or be elected to any kind of office in Russia. That's great. So you have they to have do it. nothing to gain. Yeah. All they're doing is working for the for the freedom of Russia and to create the next great world democracy. That's exactly what George Washington did, isn't it? Yeah. Instead of trying to stay on and, you know, he yeah. that's exactly what he did. He he was really the first guy to go, okay, you know, this is it. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be somebody else and it's got to be peaceful and that's it's either going to work that way or it's not going to work so that's, that's really a, cool that they're doing it that way it's a it's a tremendous uh, undertaking of course and there are huge huge hurdles to clear but these these are people who know know their country and they know the the people in the right positions and yeah and um, you know it's a, there's a lot of intrigue so um, wow that's I'm, really I'm, cool i'm hoping that becomes huge yep. so anyway now, oh, one of the other, I remember one story you told me while you were, uh, I was kind of disappointed just a minute ago, you, you rattled off the countries that you're working. You're not, you're not going to Sweden anymore, huh? No, I have. I, I used to have a, a client there. We launched actually the first uh, commercial news talk station to compete with state radio in Sweden a few years yeah. ago, but I'm not, I'm not working there now. 
Yeah, you told me a story about going going there. You were working there in Sweden, and I think you went out to uh, went out to dinner with a bunch of the people from the radio station. You remember the story? You had a, no, no, had some wine. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't remember. You might have you, to tell the story. You said you had you you had just enough wine to loosen up your tongue a little bit, and you're looking around at everybody there, and you said, <laughs> "See, now you do remember." Right? Yeah, <laughs> you said. Do you people know how beautiful you are? <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember that. Scandinavians. Story. Yeah. And didn't you tell me they said, well, yes. Yeah. We know. Yeah. The the what was he? He wasn't the morning guy. I think it was the afternoon host. Uh, and this is a so this is a radio host, right? And as we yeah. both know, and you can tell anybody who's looking at this video, people in radio, there's a reason why we're in radio and not on television, right? <laughs> we uh, don't like cameras. Exactly. Right. Uh, so this guy's a radio host. And I, so I make this comment and everyone kind of laughs and he says, oh, we've been made aware. <laughs> we're, <laughs> ma we're made aware. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I wonder how that works. But I didn't ask. That's incredible. Yeah. What, what have you learned about uh, life on planet Earth with your, ex your, your widespread experiences? I'm going to guess that it's basically that people are the people of the same everywhere. Well, I can answer that a couple of different ways. Yeah. Um, maybe one of the most valuable things that I get from the work I do internationally, and especially with the spoken word, the news talk stations that I work with internationally, because they're all talking about you know world issues and current events and all that, is I've really been able to see how the United States, what the size of the, the image of the United States is outside of the United States, and how we're seen and how that changes over time. Because you you cannot get that sense at all, yeah. of course, when you live here, right? We're we're the greatest thing ever, and you know, but when you're in Europe or and you're in Latin America, uh, and you see the way that people look at the United States, it's really eye opening. And so, just personally, I think that's one of the most valuable things that I get from my work is that more um, nuanced view of who we are in the United States as Americans and how we're seen and how the things that we do impact people. And sometimes we know it and sometimes we don't know it. I think you know? that's and something that, that all Americans want to know. How, how are we viewed? And I'm sure be a generalization because you could go around each different country and find uh, minor differences. I can tell you one thing overall. I, I'll tell you two things actually overall. Yeah. One is um, we really are seen as arrogant and we really are seen as we don't really know the damage we do. And most people outside of the United States think we don't care about the damage we do, which is actually probably true to a large degree when, when we do something that impacts other countries. Know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's something that's very present when you're out, with people who live outside of the United States looking at you know, what we do. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and, and I'll use an example or an analog, healthcare. When the Obamacare debate was going on here is when I was working in Sweden and I was in Denmark and I was doing some work in Norway, right? And so in the, you know, when you're in the US, those are the socialist countries and you know, those, that's like the worst, the worst it can get, right? And I had, one day I was in Sweden and I had pink eye. <laughs> so I had to find a, first of all, I had to find an ophthalmologist who would accept money because in their system, there is no money for healthcare. It's all, you know, nationalized, right? And so there is no money for healthcare. And so I found this doctor who agreed to accept, you know, 50 euros or whatever, 50 kroner or 100 kroner, whatever it was. So 
I go in and she looks at my eye and she says, yeah, that's conjunctivitis. So here, I'm going to give you this and this. No prescription. She just had it. So I'm going to give you Baxitraxin. I'm going to, you know, whatever. And then she goes, and so you've paid me for a 60-minute um, appointment and we're, we've got about another 57 minutes left of the appointment. <laughs> and, and I said, I've just spent more time with you than I do with my own doctor in any visit that I ever have at three minutes. I've spent more time with you. I can't imagine what we would do for the next talk about for the next 57 minutes. And she says, well, you've paid for it. So, you know, and what I, what I realized, and again, this is, this is not uh, an opinion for or against, you know, healthcare, whatever, but this is just, is this observation that I had. What I realized is there is a layer of worry that we have in the United States. If you get cancer, if you get the wrong kind of cancer, if you have the wrong kind of accident, if you don't have insurance and you get cancer or an accident or a heart attack or whatever, and you, you know, you lose, you go bankrupt and you lose everything just trying to pay the medical bills and all that. There's a, like a, a, a film of worry that I think we all have in the background about you, you don't want to get sick because you're not going to be able to afford it. You don't want to have a catastrophic accident. If you do, you better hope you die because otherwise you're not going to be able to afford it. That they don't have. That, that whole worry just does not exist in most countries in Europe, especially in Scandinavia. It's just not, you have a heart attack, you go into the system, you get great care, they help you survive, you go on to live another 50 years. It's not like you do that here, except you go bankrupt in the process, you know? And so- How's it paid for? Taxes. Yeah. But here's, uh, well, I, and I don't mean this to be a you know political thing, but, and here's the thing about the taxes. They pay more income tax than we do because it has right. to cover that. And it, and it also covers universities. So, you know, we have almost free junior colleges and they have almost free or completely free universities, like big four-year prestigious universities with and post postgraduate degrees and all that. Um, so they pay more in income tax. But one day I was sitting probably over a beer or four with, you know, a talk show host in Sweden, and we decided to add up the taxes. So they pay more in income tax, but then I pay more in property tax. I don't think they pay property tax at all. I pay more in California. I pay more in sales tax. California, I sure as hell pay more in gas tax, which I think yeah. is about 60 cents a gallon, which is why the prices in California are always higher than they are where you are in Texas or, or anywhere else. And so when you add it all up, I really don't pay any more tax than, or less tax than they do. I just pay it differently than they do. And their taxes, of course, don't go to a huge, um, you know, and necessary defense establishment, of course, right. because they, they have us and NATO or, you know, whatever. Um, they, their taxes go to other things. But, but, but my point was, again, it's not for or against, you know, healthcare, Obamacare or whatever. Yeah. It was just to say their view of the United States is, they don't understand how this super successful, super prosperous, very imaginative, creative, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, create your own opportunity, American dream country would bankrupt people because they get the wrong illness or people yeah. become homeless because they lose a job and then they just start to slip through the cracks. They just don't understand that. How is it possible that we can be all these things, the shining beacon on the hill, yeah. and yet on the other hand, we're third world in a way to them, you know, they're, according to their point of view, because of the way that they live and the way that their system works. And that's been really interesting to see. And I've spent a lot of years now talking to people and kind of looking at it from that perspective and looking yeah. at understanding how they can think that way about us. It's a reasonable confusion. 
I mean, yeah. reasonable for us if we ever stop to think about it. What is the homeless situation in other countries? Oh, it's not nearly the same. It's yeah. in Latin America. It's pretty tough because you have a lot of immigrants going through, and there's there's you know not a lot of social net, no social security. So you become disabled and you can't work. You you can't work, but there's no there's no disability SSI. What do they call the disability here? It's social security. There's none of that. There's no long term disability insurance. So when you can't work, you just end up on the street begging. So there's a lot of that in Latin America. Um, very little homelessness in in Europe. I think there's some. It's and this is just my opinion. This could be right. completely wrong, but there's so little of it. But I do see it that sometimes I think I wonder if they choose it. So I wonder if this is a person that just has made a conscious decision to live outside of a pretty wide and pretty deep social net that seems to you know, capture everyone else that starts to fall through the cracks. Yeah. Kind of off the grid as it were. Yeah. Like it's a conscious. No, we know there are people the like that. There are people like that in this country. And then there's, then there's, uh, you know, the, the people who, who, uh, have mental health issues and people with drug problems and all that kind of stuff. I was just curious if, if all that exists in other countries oh, yeah. as well, or, or if yeah. they have programs and systems for taking care of those people. They have more programs than we do, but yeah, yeah, especially in Europe. They have more programs than we do. So, <clears throat> excuse me, all, all things considered, how, how, many, uh, how many companies are you working with? Do you, and do you have a limit? Um, right now I'm working with uh, 10. Uh-huh. Um, I try to keep it to about 10. Um, but you know, there's always somebody who's, you know, I I've kind of done everything I can do with them or they have, you know, they're worried about their budget or whatever. Yeah. And so they move on or I move on and then there's somebody else that comes along, but I, I try to keep it to about 10. Are you, are you still a one man operation essentially, right? No, I have, I have a one full-time assistant and two part-time people who help me operate this business. There's no way I could do this by myself. Well, I know you used to, you used to have somebody that, uh, Wound up working with us in Los Angeles at CBS. I can see her and I can't think of her name. Lily? Yeah. Lily. You, you Lily said that, uh, she, she made uh, she made the trains run on time. Yep. So exactly. I guess you've got that kind of, But you don't I still have, have that. pardon me? I still have that. I still have not her anymore, but I have yeah. a full-time person who does that for me. Yeah. Thank God. And it saved my life every day. Yeah. yeah no kidding. I'm sure. So <clears throat> but you don't, but you're not taking on uh, partners or anybody that would be, uh, and I'm not applying. I don't, I don't want a job. Oh, you'd be great. No, I actually. don't want a job. I, <laughs> yeah. There was a time when I wanted to do that, but there's that's, that's past. But um, no, I mean, you're not going to expand into some big agency. No, I don't think so. At, you know, a few years ago when I first started the business, I had these big hopes of, you know, scaling, I guess is really the word, right? Scaling up and turning yeah. it into something that I could sell someday. And, you know, I think at this point in my career and at my age and with the work that I'm doing, and I love the work I'm doing and I love the clients that I have, you know, which is one great thing about consulting is they have to like me or they're sure as hell not going to pay me. And I have to like them or I won't work with, I don't need to work with them. I don't, I don't, you know, it's not like a radio job or any job where I need the job, even though I hate the boss. So that's a really cool thing about it. But yeah, there was a few years ago, I was thinking about, man, how do I create a big thing out of this? And now I, I, you know, it is what it is. And this is my business. You, you and, would wind up nothing but managing your company. You wouldn't yeah, be which doing I don't, the consulting work, right? Yeah. And I like doing the consulting work, of yeah. course. 
So, yeah. And in fact, this is terrible. This is <laughs> terrible about the way I manage the product of my business, which is the consulting versus the business itself is, you know, sometimes I'm going so fast and I'm so passionate about the work I do. I'll come back and I will totally forget to send a client an expense report after a trip. Just totally oh. forget because <laughs> I just go on to the next thing. And I'm so excited. I come, you know, it's a really productive trip and I've really reached people and we did some great coaching. And, you know, the day I leave the radio station sounds noticeably better because of my visit. And I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of that. And I'm really motivated by that. And I'm really energized by that. And then I just go right to the next thing. And then a month later, I go, wait a second. I didn't I, I never, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how I manage my business sometimes. Your I'm, assistant? I'm better at it, but yeah. You need to turn that stuff over to your assistant the minute you get back. Yeah. That's what I've started doing. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. For just right. that so reason. One, yeah. We, we come back to where we started. Passion. Yeah. Love the love of the business which you developed as a child. I did too, about age eight, but I didn't. And when I was 12, I was going into Croy Radio, but it was downtown Sacramento at the time, upstairs above the country made. And uh, I would be able to sit there and watch the disc jockeys through the glass and man, oh man, I'm going, yeah, I got to do that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it and, goes- And the, when did you start? How did you cross that line? When I was when I was in high school at Highlands High School in Sacramento, uh, mm -hmm. we had. Uh, do you remember Gil Krause? I do very well. Gil Krause uh, was working at KCRA Radio. He had a little talk show. He had a teenage talk show, and he came out to our school and did a speech for the student body. And I think he was just kind of he was recruiting guests. He would have a he'd do like a two hour show. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of it as uh, in line. That's what it was, the inline, because you mm. were in, man. Uh -huh. And so he would have teenage guests and teenage callers talking about teenage things. Kind of a really cornball idea now, but this was the 1960s, you know, so it was, it was cool. So he came out and talked, and I came right down off the bleachers at the end, and I went up and introduced myself, and I said, I want to do that. I want to come down and, and see you work. I would like to be on your show. And he invited me, and I did, and... Uh, after the after after that, I went into my senior year, and when I got out of my senior year, he had lined up a job for me at KCTC, just threading tapes and stuff through automated radio station. And that so, was the one of the big stations in Sacramento at that time. Yeah, beautiful music on. Yeah, KCTC. so I got my first job straight out of high school. I was seventeen, mm -hmm. but uh, man, you started at twelve. <laughs> Only because at Croy they had no human relations department at that radio station, so they you know they they didn't care about giving me an internship for college credit when yeah. I was twelve years old. I tell you what, it's a fun <laughs> thing when people our, our age uh, still love what they do. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a question for you because I okay. know you're supposed to be interviewing me, and this is supposed to be a conversation. I don't like me, to think I, of these as interviews. I like to think okay, of good. these conversations, and good. this is the first one that truly is just a conversation. Okay, good. So I have a question for you. You more than anyone I've ever heard or worked with, okay? You are able to tell a story, tell a news story. So a current news story where you actually have to keep track of facts, not just a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a story like a human interest story, or whatever, but yeah. um, with warmth and giving some, a little bit of hope, I guess, with a spark in your eye, which is a term I use all the time in my work and I have never been able to successfully translate, 
but my mom used to say that when I was a kid, and you have that. You have a spark in your eye. I talked to you about that when we were working together in Los Angeles at KNX. You, how, how did that happen? Did you start that way? Or did you start painting in the lines and doing it the way you're supposed to do it and reading the liner cards the way they're supposed to be read? And then somehow, like the little Forrest Gump in the movie, the, the brackets <laughs> fell off and you just took off and started running. How did you get to this point where you can tell stories and you can talk about some of the most serious things that are going on in this world and yet leave me with a little warmth and a little hope at the end of it? Because nobody does that like you do. I, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, and you have said that before, so that's you know that's why we're that's why we're talking now. I wanted to hear it again. No, I, <clears throat> I I don't know the answer to the question. I can tell you this: number one, my mother was uh, she was a, a happy person, and she she filled me with enthusiasm for each day. Very ironic because in her own life, she was she was largely depressed, um, very sad very often, but she wrapped herself in the life of her kids and she made us people that she was having trouble trying to be. So, I mean, the, the thing that I could remember more than anything, if people would say, what do you remember most about your mother? I would say she, she would tell me this can be a good day or a bad day. It's entirely up to you. And she made me mm. appreciate the little good things in life, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to carry that forward, but it's funny what you were talking about. Uh, and, and you use that phrase, a sparkle in your eye or something. Um, I met the great Paul Harvey one time in Sacramento mm -hmm. and uh, we were at KFVK and he came in to give a speech, one of his talks, big auditorium, the Memorial auditorium. And we were hosting. So there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a reception for him at the hotel and I was in there and I was doing the morning show. So the idea was I was supposed to corner Paul Harvey and get him on the phone to talk with the people on the air at the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did that. I did it with the help of my wife, Carol Ann, because I was too, I was, I looked at Paul Harvey across the room and I just couldn't believe it's like, that's Paul. That's Paul freaking Harvey right there. I, I recognize his voice. You know, yeah. and he's talking so warm and he's so you talk about just being effusively optimistic and and uh, having a great view of life and people and all that stuff. And a lot of it came from that influence because I played Paul Harvey on the air every single day. I did it at Croy you know, when I was really? doing the morning show. Yeah, we were on a Paul top Harvey. 40 station. Yeah. Wow. And then later on at. Uh, uh, KCRA and then mm -hmm. KGNR. I mean, it was like Paul Harvey was part of my life. When I, when I was working at KGNR, uh, besides doing the morning show, I also did the noon news, you know, from noon until one o'clock mm -hmm. and Paul Harvey was 20 minutes of that. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, he, he influenced my desire to tell stories in the same way. Mm -hmm. I would never compare myself to Paul Harvey, but I would, you know, to, to answer your question, I think that's probably where it came from, and I never thought about it until just now. That's very interesting. You will completely shoot this down, but I will compare you to Paul Harvey. You might not, but I certainly would compare you to Paul Harvey. So feel free to just shoot that down, but I'll just, I'm just going to say that, I had, and I wish I could mute your microphone there, but I can't. I had, uh, <laughs> I had a, an opportunity, I thought, I'm trying to remember 
if it was in Dallas? No, I think it was in Sacramento. I think, it was, yeah, it was a KFPK. And uh, Paul Harvey was still alive and he was still doing his shows. And uh, there was one time, you know, he always had fill-ins if he took mm-hmm. time off and what have you. And uh, somebody called from the network and wanted to know if I was interested in filling in for him. I said, oh, yes. Yes, 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 of course. <laughs> Please. Okay, mm-hmm. we'll get back to you. Never did. They never got oh, back to me. Man, big mistake <laughs> on their part. Big mistake on their part. I, can I ask you one more question? Yeah. Um, you asked me about how I transitioned from working in music and playing records to doing news. How yeah. did that happen for you? So you're a top 40 DJ at Croy. I used to listen to you on Croy, and I know how much of a DJ you really were. You were the fast talking. You did all the things you yeah. were supposed to do and the, you know, 10 second intros to songs and all that. Yeah. And then you ended up doing the morning news at KCRA, which with, at the time was the big all you know news talk station sacramento how did you make that transition from when you played your last record to when you were doing news and talk in the morning well from sacramento i went uh from croy i went to uh, los angeles at when i was 21 and uh just same as me yeah i was i was i was programming k-earth at 21 yes wow and here i was feeling good telling you i was programming kfi at 22 they were, an you have all, me they were an automated oldie station at the time. Yeah. They were playing all 50s music at the time because this was 1972, 73. Wow. And the oldies, you know, oldies were 50s. You couldn't go back any farther or you'd be in your parents' hit parade shows. Right. Um, so I was program director of that station at 21. <clears throat> and they were the number seven station in Los Angeles. It was a big deal, but... Uh, then from there, I went to Memphis with the same company, RKO. WHPQ in Memphis, the big yeah. top 40 station. Wow. WHPQ as program yep. director there, did the midday show. And how old were you home. when you were programming WHPQ? Pardon me? How old were you when you were programming WHPQ? 23, uh, I want to say maybe? 22, 23, something like that. <laughs> I didn't stay in Los Angeles very long. <clears throat> I, get, I didn't. I, I, wanted to get, I wanted to get back on the air. I wanted to do live radio, not automated radio. But it was mm-hmm. still a great, great opportunity for me. And then when I came back to Sacramento after I left Memphis, was uh, I started working at KCTC and doing commercials. KCTC was owned by the same company as KCRA. We're in the same building and uh, started doing a lot of commercial work. And I became a production director doing commercials. And one day, and I'd been there for several years, and nobody, for some reason, nobody in that station had any clue that I had ever been on the air. Uh, anywhere i was just you know i'm just a guy doing commercials mm-hmm. and uh they they had a there something happened where one day at at uh, kcra radio which is all the news talk stations you said they they ran into a situation where they didn't have anybody at all to do the morning show guy was sick somebody else was sick i mean one thing or another and the program director uh dave kleinbart he went by the name of dave darren um mm. He uh, he came to me and he says, "Were you on? You are on the air, right, at Croy or something?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "He says we got. Uh, he says we're we're in an absolutely desperate situation. You know, have you ever done any news?" I said, "I can read." You know, so they 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 threw me on there, and one thing led to another, and I wound up being moved into the news department, out of the production department. So it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. I never wanted to be a newsman. I never wanted to be a journalist. Um, 
I kind of cringe if people use that word because most of the people in radio who do news, and I'm going to insult people here that I don't mean to do that, but most of those people are simply uh, rewriting newspapers and, you know, yeah. calling themselves journalists. Copy. Yeah. And, you know, and in, in my view, it's just, I say, you know what, we're just storytellers. We're, we're the town criers of mm-hmm. the century. That's all. We're just. Maybe this answers the other question that I asked you about. How is it that you can talk about some of the most serious things going on in the world in a way where you're not reading and you leave us with a sense of hope and all of that? And maybe it's because first and foremost, and actually just like Rush Limbaugh, who would used to say the same thing, you're not a journalist. You're the first to admit you're not a journalist as you're telling me that story. You're a storyteller telling me that story. Maybe that's the part of the answer to that question that I asked you. You don't see yourself as journalist. You don't see yourself as super serious. You see yourself, you have to see yourself as credible, I imagine, and you have to tell the story in a credible way so that I believe, you know, the facts that you're passing across, passing to me. But, but it's because as you open the microphone and you start that story, you're a storyteller first and not a journalist first. Maybe, David, that's what makes all the difference in the world about how you are, why you are the way you are and how you've been so successful with the style that you have. It's very, very important to me on the air that I not, I will tell you what I think about something, but I will not tell you how you should think about something. And I make Mm -hmm. it very, very clear that when you come right down to it, I don't know diddly squat about much of anything. My father told me something when I was about 14. It really kind of blew my, my chance at a big career in talk radio because he said, people say you have a right to your opinion. He said, that's only half right. He said, you have a right to an informed opinion. And if you don't know what you're talking about, you should shut the hell up. Mm. Well, that carried that, you know, during the OJ Simpson trial, people was absolutely completely thoroughly convinced to this day that he killed his wife. I would go, you know, it's a good thing that I'm not a juror because I would have to say, how am I supposed to know? I wasn't there. I wasn't on the porch. I Mm -hmm. didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. With with and they say, well, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. What is that? A reasonable doubt? I don't. I don't know that. You know. I don't know that it's here in Dallas this morning. I don't know that it's a cloudy day. I mean, it's a cloudy day, but I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. I just I know that uh, at this point in this society, you can't believe anything you read. And almost none of what you can see or hear because there mm-hmm. are so many people that are, you know, making yeah. everything muddy. And, yeah. I, and I just think it's it's important to me that uh, uh, somehow that come across and say, well, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about, but here's what I think mm-hmm. is the situation. You decide for yourself. Yeah. And that, I, that works. I'm kind of that's really what makes you rambling unique. here. You have no, no. That, that's what makes you unique. That answers the partly answers the question I was asking you. Before. Yeah, the other part of it is I don't I don't believe in my own ability, uh, yeah, so which is <laughs> I mean, there's a whole episode and maybe involving a psychologist just about that right there. That <laughs> you of all people with the success that you've had and all these places you just named that you've worked at and all the things that you've done to you know you don't believe in your ability. Yeah. My wife says that I'm afraid of success. I don't even know what that means, but um, I don't know. I'm 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 happy. I've yeah. good life. I like yeah. it. No, I know. Just you love what you do. Fun. Huh? You love what you do, and sometimes yeah. you do what you do in a vacuum where you get no 
feedback or direction from anybody around you in these different places that you've worked and yet you still show up every day and love what you do. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. This has been great. This is easy. We could do this every (laughs) day. We could do this every day. I I really appreciate this conversation. It's great to talk to you and it's great to share these stories with you. And it's great to actually finally learn some of how you are the way you are in your own experience. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. You're asking questions nobody ever asked. We're we're having discussions about the business that nobody ever has anymore. All right, let's do it. Let's go by and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, David. Thank you, my friend. 